So we're gonna have some fun tonight with identity. Something you all know a lot about, right? You have one. We all have an identity. I figured we could dialogue quite a bit tonight because after all, this is a topic we all have intimate experience of. So I want to start with a quote from Einstein who once said, Try not to become a person of success. Try to become a person of value. So with that in mind, I thought what we would do tonight is we would explore our sense of personal identity, its sources, meaning, practical usage, its benefits, and its obstacles. So I'm going to be really mundane. I'm actually going to start out with two definitions. The first definition is from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. This is the definition of identity. And they give three main definitions. The first one is who someone is or the name of a person. The second one is qualities, beliefs that make a particular person or group different from others. And the third one is the relation established by psychological identification. That pretty much tells us all the different ways that we use identity by labeling, oh, that's so-and-so, or that person belongs with that group, or I know my identity because of what my mind tells me, my psyche tells me about who I am. Yeah? So pretty good. The second word that I thought I would conjure up here is the definition for the word self. But I thought I would bring up the definition of self because I thought, oh, this is very interesting. You'll see it's a little different. And this, again, is from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. The entire person of an individual. That's a pretty big first definition, the entire person of an individual. So just for a moment, take, take a minute and like contemplate your entire person, what that means for you. Okay, the second one is very philosophical. I love this one. The realization or embodiment of an abstraction. The third one you're going to like even more. The union of elements as body, emotions, thoughts, and sensations that constitute the individuality and identity of a person. In other words, the sankaras. Don't you just love this? <laughs> but again, this is self. This is not identity. So even Merriam-Webster is pointing at the difference between identity and self in a very interesting way. And you'll see, the Buddha doesn't actually make this distinction, but that's okay. Merriam-Webster's does. And the last one is material that is part of an individual organism. The ability of the immune system to distinguish self from non-self. And I really like that one because that points at an innate I-ness that goes so deep in a biological organism's nature that is just so basic. Yeah? It's sort of like 
bacteria in your body know what they're supposed to do. They know what they're supposed to feed on. They know their bacteria, right? They'll go for a certain thing. They have a certain selfhood in their direction, in what they do, yeah? So these are our two definitions. And now what we're going to do is we're going to go through the Buddhist, especially the early Buddhist teachings on identity. And you'll see how the Buddha kind of marries these two things together, self and identity. He goes back and forth. I wanted to just start by naming something that we'll talk more about next week. And this is what I call organic identity. And this is the basic knowing of beingness in the world. So this is not your personal identity necessarily. This is just, I know I'm an existent being. I know I exist. That piece. Now, early Buddhism doesn't actually speak much about this basic level of I-ness. I-ness. Yeah? It just doesn't. But later Indian Buddhism does, and they go into it very interestingly. And we will explore that in more depth next week, okay? But for now, it's enough to just put forth the innateness of an I consciousness that is natural, a pre-linguistic reflexive consciousness which affords each of us an underlying sense of existence in the world. So that is your most basic identity. This just sense of, yeah, I'm alive, okay? So we'll just set that aside for the time being this week. We'll do more next week on that. So in order for us to sort this sort of pulling apart of identity, <clears throat> I thought I would um, tell you a story. So the Buddha said to Kutadanta, thy nature is not constituted by the matter of which thy body consists but by the individual's sankaras, the forms of the body of sensations of thoughts. Remember Merriam-Webster's definition? Sankara, that's what they were talking about. The person is the combination of the sankaras. Wherever they, the sankaras, are, thou art. Wherever they, the sankaras, go, thou goest. Thus, thou will recognize, a, in a certain sense, an identity of self, and in another sense, a difference. He who does not recognize identity should deny all identity, and should say that the questioner is no longer the same person as he who a minute ago, who a minute after receives the answer. So what the Buddha is doing here is he's saying, if you say that there is no identity, then you would have to say that the person I was 10 seconds ago who said those last words is not the same person sitting here in front of you. So Kudanta replies, all I care for is the continuation of self in the same sense, which makes of every person, whether identical with me or not, an altogether different person. Very well, said the Buddha. 
This is the cleaving to self. This is thy error. All compound things are transitory. They grow and they decay. All compound things are subject to pain. They will be separated from what they love and be joined to what they abhor. All compound things lack a self, an Atman, an ego. How is that? asked Kutadanta. Where is thyself? asked the Buddha. And when Kutadanta made no reply, the Buddha continued. The self to which you cleave is a constant change. Years ago, you were a small babe, then a boy, then a youth, and now thou art a man. Is there any identity of the babe and the man? There is an identity in a certain sense only. Which is your true self, that of yesterday, that of today, or that of tomorrow? Kutadanta was bewildered. The Tathagata, which is one of the names for the Buddha, it means he who is awake. The Tathagata continued. It is by a process of evolution that the Sankaras come to be. There is no Sankara that has sprung into being without a gradual becoming. Thy Sankaras are the product of thy deeds in former existences. The combination of thy Sankaras is thyself. In thy Sankaras thou wilt continue to live and thou wilt reap in future existences the harvest sown now and in the past. Learning is a good thing, but true wisdom can be acquired by practice only. So Kutadanta, practice the truth that thy brother is the same as thou. Walk in the noble path of righteousness, and thou wilt understand that while there is death in self, there is immortality in truth. So that's the end of the story. The Buddha's pointing to some very interesting things here. And he's saying the self, this thing we call self, is just an illusion. It's an ideation of some kind of permanent existing entity inside of you that is unchanging. And when the Buddha was teaching, this was extended to have a transcendent aspect called Atman, which, this is the Atman, the self with a big S, so the self I just talked about was self with a little s, this idea that I'm always going to continue psychologically. But the big S for the Hindus, which was the main religious tradition of the Buddhist time, was the idea that there was a transcendent self, a soul, in other words, that continues. And I am not this evening going to go into the iterations of how the Buddhists explained how the Sankaras traveled with you from life to life to life. But believe me, <laughs> they did, they explained. But I'm not going into it tonight, okay? So your identity who you think you are, is a compound entity. 
It's made up of a lot of experiences over time that appears to have some kind of continuation. So the early Buddhist philosophy, personal identity, is expressed in the activity of identification. And this is a very important point in Buddhist philosophy. Because it's true, you are a being sitting in your chair right now. And Buddhist philosophy would not argue with this. You are a being. You are sitting in a chair. What Buddhist philosophy points at is, how do you identify with that being sitting in the chair? That's where we get tripped up. And that's what Buddhism is always looking at. It's always pointing to, it's asking you to question. What is your level of identification? The way that the Buddhists did this was through two of the nidanas, or the links, in what is called the chain of dependent origination. And I'm not going to go into the chain tonight. I've gone into that before, actually. I think that talk is up on the internet, on my website. The 10th and the 11th links are where we get personal identity. So the 10th link is called becoming. Three forms of becoming, or what I call in modern language, self-appropriation. It's a good way to think of becoming. How you appropriate yourself is becoming. There's the senses, your sensual experience of becoming. There's form, you know, your sense that this is a solid table and everything around you is solid becoming. And then there's formless becoming, which is actually quite interesting. That's the idea that if you didn't have a body, you would be much better off which actually is an attachment in Buddhism, believe it or not. Buddhism is not about transcending all of this, you know. It's about actually recognizing the true nature of all of this. So if you cling to the idea of not having a body and not being in your existence, you are actually deluded, according to Buddhism. The Pali word, which is the language that the Buddhist texts were written in, the Pali word for becoming is bhava, it's a very beautiful word, actually, bhava. And it has a positive and wholesome aspect to it, and it has a negative and unwholesome aspect to it. So I'm just going to read you um, part of my definition from my book about bhava. So bhava, or becoming, demarcates a threshold of grasping, which results in the impulse to be something take birth in something, or identify with something. Bhava is the psychological commitment to mind states of being, bonded and bound to ascribed thingness, and the cognitional determination to identify or disidentify with imputed internal or external experiences. The idea of becoming is it's your psyche telling you, binding you to the idea of solid thingness, that you are an unchanging entity and everything around you doesn't change either. That is becoming. 
And as you do this, you are actually imputing some kind of internal existence to yourself and external existence to everything else. That's becoming. You're identifying. Bhava can be wholesome or unwholesome. When you want to sit and meditate, that's actually bhavana. That is actually the wholesome desire to become awakened. Becoming in and of itself is not a problem. It's actually whether or not you are becoming in a way that is liberating for you and liberating for other beings. That's essentially the difference. Or if the way you are identifying yourself and what you're identifying yourself with is creating suffering for yourself or suffering for other beings. These suttas actually identify ten fetters of becoming. The ten fetters are actually called the ten fetters of becoming. And for those of you who don't know, these ten fetters, these are ten um, tasks that one must recognize, deal with, and completely let go of in order to be a fully awakened being. And as I've said here before in my other talks, the first three are the most important. The first one is belief in a self. That's called Sakya Ditti. So this is the belief that you are an unchanging being. Uh, the second one is doubt, especially about the teachings, but self-doubt is very big. Doubt in general. This is called Wichikicha. And Wichikicha really undermines a tremendous amount of our well-being. And the third one is very interesting. It's Silabata Paramaso, which is actually attachment to rites and rituals. And said in our common language, it's everything that you're family, your culture, your nation, your religion, it's pretty much everything everybody ever told you you're supposed to be and how you cling to it. So these are the three main obstacles to liberation, according to the Buddha. And these three have everything to do with identification, with becoming and with your personal identity. So the 11th Nidana, what comes from becoming, when you identify, you basically take birth. Birth, or jati, um, in the sphere of dependent origination, it does actually refer to being born in a human body. But it also refers to taking birth in things psychologically. It's both things. Traditionally, birth meant assured rebirth, the natural outcome of bhava. For our purposes, birth refers to the results of habitual becoming in the current lifespan, caused by primordial confusion and dispositional tendencies. Habitual becoming furthers continuing birth of wrong relationship with one's lived world. A limited world of mentation, governed by an imprisoned mind, suffering from unending reactive cycles of feeling, craving, clinging, and becoming. Essentially, birth actualizes mind's identification with ignorance 
and the subject-object dualism, which in turn feeds the mind's abject resistance to the inherent entropy of human life. Birth is more than just identification. Birth is actually believing in what you identify with. Birth is the undying belief that you have a separate self inside of you that just lives on its own and has nothing to do with what's going on outside of you. This is essentially the primordial ignorance that we are born with in this human body. It's, it's just a basic delusion that your little ego has absolutely nothing to do with anything out here. This is what we call subject-object dualism. In fact, it all arises simultaneously. And how does Buddhism explain this? It explains this because everything that happens inside of you is a phenomena. It's just a flow of continually arising, existing, and passing away phenomena. Everything. And all of those phenomena arise simultaneously with everything that this shifting landscape internally perceives out here. There is no separation. It all arises together simultaneously. But it doesn't look that way, right? It's like we have this little homunculus inside of us, this little being inside of us that exists completely apart from everything out here. We could just separate ourselves and say, oh, you know, that's all, that's them, that's not me. Not so. Not so. So birth is the complete belief in this primordial confusion. And this is essentially the thing that keeps us from awakening. So it turns out that our personal identity is actually a fallacy. Because the things we hold so dear, we cherish so much about ourselves, about who we are, about what we believe, about what we do in the world. It's just a bunch of phenomena that's just continually collecting itself all together and making something that looks pretty great. Yeah? On the other hand, it's very important for us not to get lost in nihilism You know, Buddhism could take you to nihilism if you didn't understand. You could say, well, what's the point of me doing anything good in the world? What's the point of me investigating anything? What is the point of me living another minute if this is just nothing? And that's not what Buddhism teaches. So we have a personal identity for a reason. Because we can do very, very good things in the world with a personal identity. So it's important for us to hold our personal identity and honor it, while at the same time recognizing the true nature of it. There is no personal identity. I know, this is tough. I wanted to read you a quote from Tanisaro Bhikkhu from his book called The Paradox of Becoming. And he very beautifully elaborates the relationship between becoming and birth. He says, You can learn how the mind finds a place for rebirth by watching how it moves from one becoming to another in the here and the now. 
The Buddha's awakening also taught him that the craving and clinging leading to stress are identical to the craving and clinging that lead to becoming. So becoming is inevitably stressful. This explains why the typical human way of avoiding suffering, which is to replace one state of becoming with another, can never fully succeed. You can fool yourself by saying, if I just make my life more comfortable, I'll actually be happier. That is a primary delusion of becoming. If I could just have more money, if I could just have a better house, if I could just have a better relationship, if I could replace the thing that's uncomfortable for me with something that's more comfortable for me, my life would be less stressful. Oh, let's face it. I mean, the entire mindfulness movement is sort of based on this crap. I mean, honestly. The way it is now, pop mindfulness, I mean, this is basically it. Everything in our culture comes, it gets all co-opted by, if, it's, if I can make your life easier, great. <laughs> Seriously. And, and so that's not what this is about. This is about a sense of looking deeply, and that is not easy. It's absolutely doable. But the idea is not to make your life more comfortable. The idea is to make your mind more pliable and to make your mind clear to know discomfort as it is so that it's just another phenomena. So that you might not think, you might not believe that if you get a better house, you'll actually be happier. You could be happier without a better house. Or you could be unhappier with a better house. It's better to know that the house itself is not the object of your happiness. Your happiness is cultivated from within. Therefore, having a better house or not doesn't really matter. So if you can have a better house, why not have a better house? It's fine. The problem is if you think the better house is going to make you happier inevitably in the end, you don't know much about real estate because every house <laughs> has problems. <laughs> no matter how much nicer you think it is, inevitably it will be a problem. <laughs> so I thought we might play a little bit and look at some of the conditional sources of our happiness. The best way to do that is to have you each inside of yourselves explore the answer to the question, who am I? And we'll do this from a couple of different avenues. Oh, I thought I would, before we do the exploration, I would just give you a little bit of advice or wisdom from Mark Twain, who once said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. <laughs> Okay, so what he's saying is all these terrible things actually, I thought them but they never actually happened and that's often the way it is we, even when we have really difficult circumstances happen in our life, often the way we retell these things to ourselves is much worse than they actually were 
Or what we're doing is we're continually telling ourselves a story about the way things are that is so much worse than the way things really are. So as you think about who am I, I just wanted to sort of awaken you to that thing so you could be looking for where you might be telling yourself about a story about who you are that is much worse than the story of who you actually are. Okay, and maybe catch yourself in the act of doing that and smile at it and just recognize, oh yeah, that's what human beings do. And then maybe look a little more deeply. Is it really as bad as I think? If you were going to answer the question, who am I? What big general categories might you answer that question with? Yeah. Your sex. Sex, gender, yes. Human being. Human being. Okay, what else? Profession. Profession. That's a big one, isn't it? Age. Age. Yes, what else? Temperament. Temperament. I like that one. Yeah. What else? Intellect. Intellect, yes. Are you an intellectual or are you not? Mm-hmm. What else? Family. Family, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Relationship and status. Relationship status, yes. <laughs> yes. Income. Income. There's a big one. How about class? Class. There's a huge one. Race? Nobody said race yet. Political preferences. Political preferences. Ethnicity, I think I heard. Oh, yeah. There's a big. Gender preferences. Gender preference. Yes. How about religious affiliation? Financial status. You bet. Financial status. That's a big one, too. Physical disabilities, yes, yes. We can include mental disabilities in there, emotional disabilities, right? Yeah. All disabilities, yes. We're equal opportunities when it comes to disabilities, yes. Anything, any other big general categories? Nationality. Nationality, there's a huge one. Employment status. Employment status, yes. Appearance. Appearance. Yeah, that one. Say a little more about appearance. Oh, are you a 10 or are you a 5? Oh, my God. <laughs> Do we still have Bo Derek hanging over us? <laughs> it's still discussed. It's, I guess it is. It is. I mean, and, and, it, and I mean, they, they even say, like, you know, for employment, if, you know, if, you know, that... That, that, I mean, that makes a difference. If you have two people that are considered equal, the person who has is the more attractive will probably get the job. Actually, the taller one will get taller the job, one too, it yeah. turns out. <laughs> that, that's as well, yeah. There's a lot of studies that show a taller yeah, person yeah. gets the job. In my next life, I'm going to be tall. <laughs> you never find pants that are long enough. Yeah. <laughs> because in the next life, I want to be short. <laughs> <laughs> this is a person who does not spend her time hemming. <laughs> okay. So, yes, yeah, so these are lots of big categories. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to reflect for a moment. Just take a moment. And I want you to re- reflect on your relationship, your identification with these broad general categories. So we heard race, gender, age, nationality, 
class, employment status, religious affiliation, what work you do. And as you filter through them in your mind, notice which ones feel more like you, which ones you relate to more or less. Notice if any of them rub you a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of charge around them. How much do these general categories answer the question for you of who am I? And you really reflect on that. And now think to yourself, have I always felt this way about these categories? Or has my relationship to them changed over time? Have I related to one or more of them more at a different point in my life? Was I afraid of one or more of them at a different time in my life? Did this make me somebody different? in the past than who I feel I am now? Or has it been pretty much the same? So would anybody like to share some of their reflection? Anything that just showed up for you that you thought was interesting? about these general categories and your relationship to them? Okay. I can speak loud. Okay, go um, for it. If you look at what neurobiology is coming up with now, that the sense of self is actually tiny, that there's one part of memory and a very small part of memory that remembers certain pieces of your life. Autobiographical memory. And then... There's also a sense of physical self that's very small. Yes, indeed. And then the rest is a story. People are lazy. People are full of shortcuts, so we make up these stories. And our memory, even at its best, we remember tiny pieces and make up stories. And that's if we concentrate. And we're lazy, so we don't concentrate. Mm -hmm. So it's one big story, except for this tiny little piece that's physical. So it's one big story, except for... A small bit of information that might actually be true. I was saying to my friend the other day how different I am from 10, 15 years ago even of being very enthusiastic about things and sort of, wow, that's great. And that get, gets me into trouble. And now I'm not that way as much at all. Okay. I'm much calmer, much um, more real, not... not um, trying to impress somebody or uh, rope them into my ideas or um, it's okay. Okay. So for you, there's a sense of uh, settling in to something in yourself that feels more at home so that you're, you're not trying to force yourself out on things so much. Yeah? Very interesting. Other reflections, yes. 
Getting older, getting okay. Older. I, I see so many um, uh, the identities or, or the ways I might have thought about myself are just kind of like falling away or falling away. And one of the things that I find that's good about getting older is that I have, I know, I've come to really know that things are really impersonal. So that when things happen, or my work environment, or things, or somebody says something to me, and it's kind of like I, um, I can see, I can really see that it's I'm not, I'm not so much the center of whatever's going on. So I know that it's not about me, which is really, um, which is really quite, uh, quite nice. There's a calmness that I have mm -hmm. that. I probably didn't have maybe 30 years ago. So you're kind of pointing at where we're going next week a little bit, yeah? This sort of I, holding your identity more loosely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because things yeah. are, I mean, because so much of, of who you thought you were, you really realize that you're not. Well, most people actually don't have that experience, so I'm happy that you have that experience. But I can tell you, mostly what people think they are is what they think they are. And that's what they cling to, is what they think they are. But it does sound like these general categories, you guys aren't really relating to them all that well. Yeah? I don't know. Anybody get defined by them? Yeah. Yeah, it's become rather clear to me that my identification with career has caused me a lot of suffering in the last five years or so. Okay. Undoubtedly, your the the relationship you were having with your career was causing you suffering. Yeah, along those lines, I I've let go of my career, and my career served as an enormous distraction for the key issues about who who who's Paul, who's Absolutely. this who's this person in here. Yes. And, um, so in letting go, before I really felt like I want, that I was ready to, um, but then realizing my heart wasn't in it anymore, it's been very traumatic. And I, I live that quote from Mark Twain, the worst things in my life have, have never, never happened. Yes, of course. It's all up here. Yes. And um, it's just been so disorienting, and, and it's opened up this huge, I don't even know how to describe it. Yes. What I love about what you're sharing with us is that you are pointing at this kernel of truth that I think if people could grasp it before their lives fall apart, their lives would fall apart quite differently. Because... The, the flexibility and the fluidity with which we hold our identity is something that affords a tremendous amount of freedom, even within certain contexts. So, if, and this is kind of where we're going next week, awareness can show you where you're clinging. Awareness can show you long before you actually have to let go of your career that you are over-identified with your career. 
And awareness can allow you to loosen the bonds psychologically so that when the actual career falls away, should that happen, the falling away is a completely different experience. It may still have some disorienting aspects to it because your life is changing, obviously. But in terms of your core and your center, that kind of disorientation doesn't change because it's not linked to something like my work. Myself is my work. Well, if who I am is not that thing, it's something that gives rise to that thing. <laughs> it's something that engages with that thing. It's something that experiences that thing. Then there's a loosening there that happens quite easily. And this is the liberation that the Buddha was actually talking about. And I appreciate so much that you would share this very difficult and precious experience of yours with us. Because I think it's a beautiful way for people to really get what non-identification is without having everything blow up in front of you. <laughs> so thank you. Okay, yes. I had, had a thought a few minutes ago just about the cycle of life, like for me, um, that I think I was trying to build an identity. You know, that I was like doing accomplishments or career or having experiences yes. that I thought were going to build who I was. And then the last 10 years, maybe even more the last five, I've sort of turned that around the other way and I've been sort of trying to pull away that stuff yes. and find what is the identity in there, you know, pull away some of the layers of, you know, like, what, what was the real identity? Was there a real identity, you know? Yes. Um, but just like there is, like there is something in there that is more, more the me of this thing. And have you been finding that more authentic you? Yeah, in different ways, I really do. Through the Buddhist practice, I find it a lot. It's like yes. sometimes I think I'm just in the moment, you know, like, a, like some kind of a phenomenon. But, yes. but, but also there's, there's some transcendence. I think there's some patterns, there's some, you know, some values and, and uh, things that, that are <clears throat> obviously there. People get very um, tripped up with Buddhism because they mistake it for nihilism, that there's nothing. But there, nothingness is actually everythingness. <laughs> it's a field of total possibility. The authenticity of who you are is total possibility. And that is the core of Buddhism. Nothing is fixed. That's the idea. So don't, don't let our discussion of non-identity within identity lead you to think that you are nothing. <laughs> because believe me, you are something. And Buddhism, is very, the Buddha was very clear in the Eightfold Noble Path. It, this is a recipe for how to be something very beautiful in this world. That's what Buddhism is about. It's about really fine-tuning the vehicle, this, this body, this mind, this heart, fine-tuning it so that you can be a source of such beauty in this world. That's the truth of Buddhism. And I think that's partly what I think you have been trying to do by deconstructing these scaffoldings of identity, yeah? And maybe finding something so beautiful, so pure and beautiful for you that feels authentic, yeah? Thank you.
Anybody else? This is so rich. Yes. Um, I noticed that some of the things I identify with, there's a sense of inadequacy. Yes. Other things I identify with, there's a sense of arrogance. I love that. Any chance you would be courageous enough to give us an example of, in, of something that calls up inadequacy for you and something that calls up arrogance in you? Um, and you don't have to. Oh, no, I mean, because I think we can all relate, frankly. You, you'll be speaking everybody's story, I think. Um, an inadequacy in being a woman, an oh arrogance in the work that I do, um, an inadequacy in my finances, um, an arrogance in some of my relationships. You're an every woman, you're an every person. Some of what we hold in our identity are these things that our culture has implanted in us. And I think that's another beautiful piece of the Buddhist work, is you get to look within, you really get to see the things that are informing your inadequacy, for instance. And really looking, okay, is, am I feeling inadequate because I actually am as a human being, or is this some holdover? from some, something that I've been told about myself as a woman, for instance. So we're coming to the end of our time. I know it goes so fast here. What we'll do next week is we'll start by looking at our internal beliefs. And, you know, these kinds of, these sources of identity that are specific to us and to our, our sense of self-identity. Uh, which Buddhism has so much to say about. And we will look at impermanence from the perspective of our actual experience of that continually shifting and changing internal identity, how we think about who we are, how we ideate who we are from the inside. But we're going to do it from the perspective of awareness, because awareness is really our best friend when it comes to knowing our inside. Now, this morning in his Dharma talk, Anam Tupton gave a quote from one of the Tibetan Buddhist sutras. Meditation is turning your eyes inward. That is probably the best instruction for being able to deconstruct almost anything. And the way we turn our eyes inward is awareness. Awareness is the key to everything. So we're going to have a big celebration of awareness and see how much we can land in awareness as a way for us to really become intimate with our inner sense of identity and the authenticity of identity-lessness. <laughs>